What's good, everyone? I'm Langston Clark, founder and organizer of Entrepreneurial Appetite, a series of events dedicated to building community, promoting intellectualism, and supporting Black businesses. In this bonus episode of Entrepreneurial Appetite, we have a special discussion between Brittany Patrick, founder of the Umoja Collective, and Dr. Keflin Brown, author of After the At-Risk Label, Reorienting Educational Policy and Practice. This discussion took place as part of a dinner party hosted by the Umoja Collective and Entrepreneurial Appetite as an unofficial South by Southwest EDU event. Listen and enjoy. Hi, what's up everybody? Uh, welcome to another episode of Entrepreneurial Appetite, which is a series of events dedicated to building community, promoting intellectualism and supporting black businesses. And today is special because we have like a nice little dinner party. It's an unofficial South by Southwest EDU recording and I have my good friend, future Dr. Brittany Patrick, who is the founder of the Umoja Collective, is a nonprofit organization that supports black and brown children of color as they, they, they deal with special education services in, in public education. Then we have Dr. Brown, who is the author of After the At-Risk Label, Reorienting Educational Policy and Practice. So I have a story to tell about Dr. Brown, and she knows the story, <laughs> she remembers it. So I was gonna lie at first. So I was telling, I was telling Brittany, it's like, yo, I'm gonna go to Target, I'm gonna go get a red marker. And the story I'm gonna tell is like, Dr. Brown doesn't remember this, but this is the red marker that she used to tear up my paper that day. <laughs> So uh, Dr. Brown was like my first professor in graduate school. Like literally, I think you were, because you were teaching social cultural foundations. Right. And it was from four to seven, and the other classrooms from seven to 10. And man, it was my goal every day in that class to get Dr. Brown one of three things, speaking her Negro dialect. <laughs> Roll her eyes. <laughs> or suck her teeth. <laughs> and I was successful like every day. And so this one day, like I turned in this paper and it was terrible. And I think I turned in the wrong, you know when you turn off the edits on the paper, like you know how you can turn the edits on or off? Like it was terrible. Like stuff I would never put in paper. So she walked outside, like I'm not playing games with you. a scholar? And she was real serious. And she was walking, I remember where we, you know where the Blanton Museum is? We was walking down, it was like the long walk. Uh, from the front of, um, from the front of uh, Sanchez, all the way down over to where those seats are by the museum. That. And she sat me down, that red marker's blood and guts everywhere. Just like a horror, like a horror picture. And so I have tremendous appreciation for Dr. Ron. I think for a lot of us here, MJ and Javier, she's like one of the, the first professors we all have in curriculum instruction at UT Austin. And so she's a fantastic scholar, a fantastic mentor. And I'm just great to be here and to bring these two folks together for a conversation about what it means to have the at-risk label. And so Brittany, I'll let you take it over and go from there. And we have our audience here. If you all have questions or y'all want to interject and be part of the conversation, feel free to do so and enjoy. Yes, absolutely. What an honor, first of all. <laughs> Let me say that as a former special education teacher and a former leader of a what's called a stay model in Washington, D.C., where we essentially attempt to retain our babies who have been labeled at risk, this text really challenged me. It challenged what I have always been taught 
about how we view children. And it really allowed me to ask the question of how are we defining at risk? Who did define at risk in the beginning, right? And how did we get here? And so I wanna start the conversation by just asking if you could just share a bit about the historical origins of risk and this at risk label. So first of all, thank you very much for inviting me to present and to talk or to have this conversation. And it's an honor to meet you and to see many of my old students and colleagues. And now, yeah, you're my peers and and to meet new friends. Um, And I love the story that Langston tells. It wasn't quite like that. He also (laughs) forgot to talk about the fact that I told him that I thought he was like one of the most brightest students that I had worked with. She said that too. Right, so he forgot that. Uh, so anyway, in terms of risk, that's a pretty sort of big question. I'll say that the the term at risk is just perhaps one of the more recent instantiations of that term. But we've always had, at least since the beginning of public compulsory education and schooling in the United States. We've had a concept or term that's used to describe students who are positioned as uh, in need of or potentially um, in need of special treatment because of the fear that they may not do well. the term itself, uh, I'd say at risk as a, as a term, didn't really become sort of popular until the, you know, the 80s or so. We had many other terms. If we go back to the 60s, uh, words like culturally disadvantaged was used. Um, if we go back to the 20s and the, and the early 1900s, terms like backward student uh, was used and so um, or problem problem uh, problem child was used so those we, we've had this 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 term um, and so that that I would say that's the sort of the historical origins of it and we can go all the way back to, to and what I do in the book is I try to explain how do we even get to the concept of risk which is a that's a larger uh, conversation um, But the term at risk itself, really, I would say we started to develop that kind of language uh, at the turn of the 20th century when public schooling became um, more popular. Interesting. I'm also, uh, I noticed that you talked about how this term is influencing policy. Can you speak to that? Yes. So the term at risk itself uh, is a it's a category, a label and a term that is formally used in in education spaces. And it is connected to policy. Uh, You can go to Austin Independent School District or any other school district in the area and and perhaps throughout Texas and across the country. And you, you would find that there are statutes that sort of define what is the at-risk student. And so schools use that often as a, as a, as a very specific term to categorize certain students. Um, and, and they have clear definitions of 
what constitutes or what would constitute that average student. Um, policies have been put in place uh, in some cases to try to remediate uh, potential risk factors, but more likely to manage uh, and try to contain those students that end up falling in that category. And do you, do you think that the policies are really a disservice? Kids. So this is a this is a complicated question, and in, in a lot of ways, this book uh, was a, a challenge to write. It it started out as my dissertation, and I didn't write it or get it, I didn't publish it for probably twelve years or close to um, uh, actually doing the getting the research done. So I revisited the book and and, and I revisited the topic in the book. And one of the things that sort of shifted was I really asked the question, are there students that might benefit or benefit from, you know, perhaps being seen as at risk? And I sort of land on, there are some students that may be experiencing some challenging situation that actually needs real, real, real uh, uh, remediation. The problem is that at risk as a label and a category ends up falling on students in a sort of blanket way. Um, and so it just sort of fully, you know, immerses that child under that category. It's not something that is seen as um, a point in time or a particular context that if we can sort of address this uh, or we can we can find and draw from the the assets that that child brings uh, to sort of uh, help them to address whatever that 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 little issue is that they're dealing with so that they can go on about their business. It's sort of totalizing in a way. And so uh, I say all of that to say that in the book, I try to uh, parse that out and suggest that if there is a student that is struggling with something that you really believe you should address or that needs to be addressed, that's okay as long as that does not become a totalizing sort of framework on that on that student. And I try to offer different ways that a, a school or an educator or a teacher might target that 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 little problem while also celebrating and drawing from the assets that that student brings so that you're looking at both of those at the same time. And it's difficult to, 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 to apply a totalizing uh, idea when you're looking at multiple complex uh, um, uh, factors that, that are related to who that student is. This is this is so interesting to me, and especially like your your comments on like risk discourse. Yes, and pre-service versus in-service teachers mm -hmm. really engaging in this risk discourse to pull out like you know to parse through what what supports does a student need while also acknowledging their humanity mm -hmm. while also acknowledging their culture. Mm -hmm. Could you speak to the importance of the like risk discourse amongst educators. 
So, right, so I'll try to unpack that mm -hmm. for people who might have, you know, who haven't read the book. One of the sort of biggest findings that I, that, that came out of the study uh, was this idea that I call a risk discourse, that all of the, all of the participants, in-service teachers and pre-service teachers, as well as the policies themselves, uh, education policies, federal education policies that we have from 1965 to present, all sort of move from an assumption that it's vitally important to identify students who appear to be less likely than their peers to be success uh, to be successful or to find academic success that this is sort of a, a discourse or a, a, a way of thinking and a set of practices that connect to the, that way of thinking that that defines what many people believe is the role of a teacher and the role of school. Like you are at, at, at the heart of what you do, you're supposed to be figuring out who are these students that seem to be less likely than others to be successful so that you can, you can, you can meet their needs. Um, that risk discourse was so powerful that when I realized that that's what was coming out of the data, I said, wait a minute, you know, we, we, we critique sometimes the use of risk uh, the, the use of the at-risk label, but the actual definition of it is the student who's more likely or who has a higher likelihood or who is perceived as having a higher likelihood of not being as successful as their peers. If teachers and educators and policymakers think that's what a big part of your job is supposed to do, then how are we ever going to sort of move away from that kind of thinking? Because it's there. Now, I did find some differences in the way that the in-service teachers and pre-service teachers uh, sort of made sense of that, uh, which we could talk about at some point if, you, if you'd like. Um, but everybody, policy, make, policy uh, in-service teachers and pre-service teachers were all implicated. And I guess I should say, because I don't know if everyone watching is from education, in-service teachers would be teachers who are currently practicing teaching and pre-service teachers are going through teacher preparation mm -hmm. to become a teacher. Mm -hmm. And I, I also read, listen, I was so into this text. Oh, <laughs> I just want to say, you. it really challenged me. I'm okay. not just saying okay. that. But this term, sliding scale of achievement, okay. that commonality that you found between the in-service and pre-service mm -hmm. teachers' understandings and interpretations mm -hmm. of this at-risk label, just can you speak to and share a little bit about that sliding scale of achievement? So what happens is there is no sort of um, objective measure that tells us what is achievement or not. And that to some extent, um, it can shift what you believe is achievement, what you don't think is achievement. Like that, it's relative and can move from one space to another space, one context to another context. Um, and when you have something that's variable like that, it is inevitable that socio, larger sociocultural contexts are going to play an important role or can possibly play a big, a big role in how you uh, come to understand what is achievement or not. Um, and by sociocultural factors, I mean race, 
culture, uh, social class, gender, all of those sort of surround achievement. You know, when we talk about achievement, I'll give you an example. This is a personal example. I remember I grew up in Houston and I was a part of a program called the Vanguard program. Um, and MJ probably remembers or knows about you know Vanguard, which was gifted and talented education in Houston Independent School District. That was what they called it. And when I was uh, in first grade or second grade, I was or first grade, I was put into a Vanguard program. When I left that district and went to uh, the district that I ended up graduating from, and I went to that district when I was in fourth grade, I was identified by a teacher, I think, to uh, to be tested for gifted and talented, but I didn't I didn't qualify. So I moved from one district to the next. Wow. But I was gifted in one and not in another because much of it had to do with who was in the district, uh, whatever the cutoff rates were. I, to me, that's a variable way of thinking about giftedness yes. and in much this much of a similar way we can have achievement play that role where different people think of achievement in diff uh, differently or in one context this seems like achievement and it's not that in another um, so if these ideas can shift just across context then we've got to be really careful that we are uh, aware of and reflective of the, 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 the criteria that we're using when we uh, make judgments about achievement. Yes, yes. Does it serve us to continue to use this term at risk, in your opinion? <clears throat> it's a great, great, it's a great question. And I, and I, I could, I could counter with another question, but I, 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 I'll say that it feels to me that at risk, and I sort of land on this in the book, that we can get rid of at risk. You know, someone might say that's not a nice word. Let's get a better word that's not um, that's not as bad or that's not as deficit or whatever the issue might whatever you might use to describe it. But if you replace it with a new term that sounds different, but that still fundamentally gets at the very same dynamic, then all you've done is change the label. Uh, and given the fact that we've had a history of different terms popping up, often in response to criticism about the you know negative connotation of the term, we don't get rid of the actual category and we don't get rid of the thinking that that undergirds at riskness, we just changed the term. Right. Mm -hmm. So even in the study, like it was really fascinating when I interviewed pre-service teachers uh, many, many years ago, and I asked them about the term at risk, and I said, "Have you? Are you familiar with this term? Do you know this term?" And they said, "Yes, I've heard it before." And I asked them if they were familiar with the term uh, resilient, and they said. Yes, and I asked, do you know what that means? Oh, that's a nice way to say at risk. <laughs> now that's wow. not actually what resilience means, but it is connected. Um, the resilient student is the student who is supposed to be at risk, but because of protective factors or some uh, factors that are buffering them, they're able to somehow 
overcome or to exist without fall, succumbing to um, the adverse outcomes that are related to riskness. Mm. Now, they didn't explain it that way. In their mind, they were like, oh, it wasn't resilient, it was at promise. That was the term, at promise. They thought at promise was a nice way to say at risk. Um, But even with resilience, they didn't necessarily know what that meant. Um, And they're not all synonymous terms, but that's how these pre-service teachers picked them up. Absolutely. And made sense of them. Absolutely. How and where do we begin as educators to reorient ourselves? You lay out some some really clear questions, I think, in the text. Um, But where do we begin? Where do we start? I think the first step is to be aware of the fact that we are in a very powerful position in spite of what some people may think about teaching that increasingly it's becoming deprofessionalized uh, and de-skilled and and that teachers aren't allowed to make decisions. And while all of that certainly is true, uh, we still are in a, a, we still have uh, considerable power, particularly in the ways that we make and make judgments about students in much the way, a similar way that uh, uh, Langston was talking about me, right? And the way that I approach, you know, I had to make, in order to have that conversation, I had to see something and then make a judgment, right? And so what, when we make judgments, our judgments, I mean, we're gonna have to make them, but those judgments can either serve to Uh, push our students to try and elevate them and to motivate them and to help them sort of uh, rise to the highest level of expectation that we might have. Or those judgments can be used as gatekeepers to keep students from having access. Uh, So I think at one level, we need to recognize that we have a lot of power. And I don't know how much that's a conscious thought. And then I think we need to think about what do we actually mean and what are we trying to convey when we see students in, in ways that may categorize them as somehow outside of being the normal student? And I think we need to be really, really uh, cautious. We need to be cautious about that. I think we need to be um, thoughtful, not in ways that debilitate us and keep us from making any, any decision. So, you know, Many of the pre, at least a few of the pre-service teachers, um, expressed what um, I called, and I'll just say it: it's an ontological dilemma. But I mean, that's a, a big fancy word for. They were just sort of confused about whether risk really existed or didn't, because they knew that there was something potentially problematic about re- calling a student at risk. But they still had this gnawing sense that mm, I think somebody, you know, might be at risk, but I'm not sure about it. And so what happens when you're in that place? And so I think that as as confusing as it might be, I think we need to have some ontological dilemmas about riskness because it forces us to have to ask the question. Because once we become so sure that we know exactly who's at risk, like many of the in-service teachers, they were clear, they knew. I mean, you know, they had pages in some cases of definitions of why, you know, how they knew someone, a, a student was at risk. Uh, once you get to that kind of certainty, then you are you you can you you are vulnerable to begin framing students in ways that don't allow them 
to be anything other than at risk. So um, is it useful? Um, I think it can only be useful if it is, if it is, I don't think that putting a, a label on someone is ever useful. I think it's only useful for us to identify what are the needs that our students have and to help them uh, get access to whatever they need to help them um, uh, address that need. Yeah. And I don't think you have to have a category to do that. Yeah. Category and label to do that. Yeah, you're, you're speaking to a huge aha moment I had when reading, which was this concept that risk is socially constructed. Mm -hmm. yes. And I think we so often talk about race is socially constructed. I talk often about disability mm -hmm. social construct. So in speaking to a K through 12 educator, a first grade teacher, what would you say to them in terms of like acknowledging that risk is socially constructed? You know, if we were in class, we could move through even the way that childhood itself as a discourse has shifted from the 15th century to now. What was a child then is not what a child is now. That's good. And there, <laughs> there are several categories of people, like even adolescent. That didn't exist until like the 1920s. So like these are constructed ideas. And so it's important to know that what is seen as at risk in one space is not in another. Another, another example, my, 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 both of my children went through Montessori education, but my son went through a very sort of um, strict, um, I would say, uh, uh, and, and it, it was a very strict uh, interpretation of Montessori. And so when he was in a three, four and five year old classroom, they had glass, they used no plastic. Glass and knives. They would cut apples and other vegetables, uh, apples, other fruit and vegetables. The students were responsible for doing that. When glass broke on the floor, they were responsible for cleaning it up. The teacher did none of that. Now, the three-year-olds didn't necessarily use the knife until they learned how to use it. The three-year-olds didn't necessarily come in and sweep until they knew how to, 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 to do that. But I would say by the end of their third grade year, perhaps fourth grade, they were cutting with knives and sweeping up glass. Now in any other setting, any other school setting, there would not be glass mm -hmm. and students would not be allowed to use knives because that would be seen as risky. But in this space, those children did use it. Not only did they use it, and, and deal with both of those spaces, they were expected to, and they were taught how to. That is a social construction. What is risky in one space might not be in another. And I think we always need to be careful to think about why do I see this thing as at risk? Now, I'm not saying that there is nothing that is potentially at risk, but we need to be questioning what do we think is risky and why do we think it's risky? And too often, um, issues of race difference, gender difference, social class difference, ability difference, linguistic difference have, have, have served as the markers for what 
is constituted as risky. Hey everyone, thank you again for your support of Entrepreneurial Appetite. Beginning this season, we are inviting our listeners to support the show through our Patreon website. The founding 55 patrons will get live access to our monthly discussions for only $5 a month. Your support will help us hire an intern or freelancer to help with the production of the show. Of course, you can also support us by giving us five stars, leaving a positive comment, or sharing the show with a few friends. Thank you for your continued support. That's it right there. (laughs) That's so good. Does anyone else have questions? I want to open the floor to our dinner party. Any thoughts, reflections? I I got a question. So, Dr. Brown, I've taken multiple classes with you at the Docs too when I was at UT Austin. And one of the classes that I took with you was Black Education in America. And so you were talking about the different iterations of at risk over time. And you know, now we're at at risk at promise. And thinking about the history, and we know that that, that there's racial implications of the way students are labeled as at risk. Um, But thinking through the history of black education in America and understanding that we've had segregated school systems Mm -hmm. throughout the majority of the history, Sometimes with predominantly black teaching forces and, and maybe the administration might not have been black and maybe the administration might have been black too. I'm thinking about what over time, like how was this at risk category in whatever language was used over time, how did that play itself out in segregated environments mm. and particularly like in that black environment where there might have been oversight from white admin or there might not have been. Like how would black people, if were black people using these terminologies and if you have that information? So that's a really good question and I don't necessarily have it. Um, it when I looked at early schooling um, in uh, law, generally when I looked at schooling during the 19, early 1900s, uh, the focus uh, generally was on large urban school settings. And in general, most of those, a good number of those were not, they weren't segregated by law because they were on the East Coast, um, but maybe by practice. And so it was harder, and I actually did part of our, our, our comps uh, when I was in graduate school were a little bit different than the ones, than the way we do it at UT, but I sort of did kind of a research project where I went through trying to find out um, how risk was thought about or how it might have played out in different kinds of classroom settings and it was it was it, I, I collected all of these documents and it was sometimes hard because they didn't necessarily say how in some cases you would see that there were black students and others not but they were not I did not look at any of this in the context of segregated schools so it would be interesting to see how those school spaces might have picked it up. I'll be honest and say, or be transparent, that a lot of the discourses that we found in larger um, or in, in, in dominant white spaces, sometimes that language also would play out within segregated school spaces, especially if, 
teachers had been educated because that was the terminologies that were used um, to describe schooling. What I will say that we do know about segregated schools is that there were high expectations for students and the belief that students could be successful outside of their race. So my, my, my sense is that um, there, there were likely some, possibly some differences in terms of how, um, how some of these terms might have been leveraged, not along race lines. Um, that's not to say that there weren't still maybe socially constructed ways that it may have played out, but, but, but probably and likely not a, along race lines. But it would be a really interesting study to look at, especially in segregated schools. We know that black children were uh, considered uh, the term that was used was retarded. They also used backward student. And we know that black students did get those labels in, um, you know, large urban school settings like in New York City and Chicago and other places like that. At least I, 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 I've actually seen terminology used to describe that, but not for the segregated schools of the South. Okay. Thank you. Great question. Thank you. Dr. Brown, I've heard you lecture for years and you've been one of my favorite faculty to invite to, to speak to students at the university. How do you prepare teachers talking about at risk to teach at Title I schools below socioeconomics? I mean, that's a lot of work based on um, those categories. How do you prepare teachers to deal with huge systems that quote unquote have more at risk than others. So we we spent a lot of time in the teacher education program helping our pre-service teachers to unpack some of their ideas about students and families and communities. Um, we try to help them recognize how um, there are these larger societal discourses that have already framed some students as being um, more likely to be to, to, to to not find success. And in some cases, they automatically assume that when they go into, or if they were to go into those kinds of school uh, settings that serve those populations of students, that somehow they are um, um, disadvantaged. And in some cases, they want to teach in those spaces because they feel like they're disadvantaged and they want to make a difference. So we spend time trying to help them understand the, 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 the deficit way that even well-meaning educators uh, might operate when they're thinking about those communities and to help them also recognize that if you see students as, as deficient, then it's hard for you to see what they actually bring because you've, you've already assumed that they don't have much. So we spend a lot of time talking about terms like community cultural wealth, which uh, come out of the work of uh, sociologist Tariyaso and um, the work of Mole et al. around funds of knowledge, uh, and then really pushing them to think beyond culturally deficit ways of uh, positioning students. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Pat. Mm -hmm. So good. I have a question, and then I also yeah. have a question for Brittany as well. Mm -hmm. um, Dr. Brown knows the, uh, the school that I attended um, from seventh grade to 12th grade was a college preparatory school 
for quote unquote inner city kids. It was mm -hmm. about um, 60% Latinx and 40% uh, African American. Um, at this school, you had to be accepted by a university or college to even graduate. Um, I mean, it was like we had people going from, I mean, going to Stanford, Yale, Columbia, uh, Prairie View, Texas Southern, University of Houston, U UT, Middlebury, Smith, all over the country. Um, and so the expectations academically were high. I've read more books from uh, ninth grade to 12th grade than I ever did in my undergraduate year. <laughs> when I got to my, um, when I started undergraduate studies at, at, the in, at this institution, after my first semester, I came across my academic advisor and I was struggling with some courses and she went straight to <coughs> I believe you might be at risk. Whoa. And it was uh, um, more than academically, it was a psychological hit. Mm -hmm. Because had I not been programmed from basically kindergarten to 12th, that no, you are intelligent, you are black excellence, oh, like all that programming that was instilled in me, I could have easily fell into that. Um, and so my question uh, for Dr. Brown is, how do you think, oh, and I never went back to that advisor ever. Right on. How has that label, uh, how has students uh, academically, professionally, even psychologically, through school and beyond, how do you think that has impacted them in their lives? That's a that's good. You know, that's one of the reasons why we need to be talking about the term because you know, for some students like yourself, you knew when you heard that term you knew it was a problem. Yeah. You knew that that was not who you were. Yeah. And I imagine that you also knew where that was coming from. You had been prepared, you had been socialized to probably know that that was not correct and accurate and that it was being um, placed on you because of how she read or he read, I think you said she uh, read who, who you were as, a, as a, a young black man. For others, and so that, that sort of, you knew not to go back there, and I imagine that that, knowing you, it probably propelled you to want to... <laughs> that's right, yeah. to do what you need yeah. to do, right? Um, um, and then you got through that, that space um, successfully. For others who may not have that same understanding, who may have heard that term before, someone may have told them that before, or maybe they believe that about themselves. I imagine that it could, it could, it could cause them to feel like they can't be successful, right? Um, so I think in some ways it's so important now we're getting into parenting or into being, if we talk about uh, working with young people in our community, is so vitally important that we give them, help to socialize them in ways that they recognize that, that they are not that. Because you know, it wasn't, it, it wasn't just that I think you're at risk um, and that's somehow going to lead me to do something great. It's really just a way for me to have 
have to, I mean, the way that that example, the way that it, it seemed like it played out is, you know, there's something there's something wrong and it's not this institution it, it has nothing to do with maybe the courses aren't you don't you, it's hard to connect with those courses or maybe you're not having space to build the kind of relationships you need to with others so that you can have the same kinds of networks that they have access to it 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 it, 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 it takes that all out of consideration and so uh, I think it's important for us to socialize our young people to recognize that when people start wanting to place a term on you, a category on you, that you've got to you've got to be able to to recognize that and not not ingest that and begin to embody it. Thank you for that, Dr. Brown. And my question to Brittany is, how has how has this book um, aligned with how you've been uh, taught, trained, even like the, the curriculum that's there, the pedagogical instruction that's given with your uh, program? How has it confirmed some things and maybe how has it maybe been in contrast to others? Man, great question. You know, I think this book is disrupting everything I've been taught as an educator <laughs> in the public education system for 11 years and as a leader, uh, a education leader. When we talk about an at-risk student in the education sector, we literally have a checklist where we say they have missed blank days of school, at risk. They are a teen mom, at risk. Mm -hmm. You are identified as an English language learner, at risk. Mm -hmm. It's that easy to get the label of at risk and we literally keep the paperwork on it, right? right. Um, and not easy to get rid of that label. Mm -hmm. It travels with you, right? And so I have been taught to design programming to meet the needs of these at risk kids, right? So this book has really, and as Dr. Brown was just answering your question, it made me think educators, back to what you were saying about the power of the educator and how we, we honestly have a responsibility to disrupt the narrative of the at risk label. Yeah, yeah. And so for me, I would say that that this book just totally challenged. It totally challenged me. It has me going forward from this day, really thinking about things differently, thinking about how I talk to schools about their strategic planning and how we root conversations in, wait a minute, let's take a second to think about how we're viewing students. Wow, that's good first before we put anything in place. So for me, the book I would say has just totally disrupted everything I've been taught. And I honestly feel like I'm on a new path right now of, of relearning because for 11 years, this is what, this is how I've been taught, right? And so now I'm having to unlearn reorient, right? I think that that term was so perfect. I'm literally in this, in the thick of reorienting my views. And I can be 100% honest and say that um, and vulnerable. And I think one of my questions for Dr. Brown to really close us out is, 
in this post-COVID learning era, mm. right? What is our responsibility to continue to disrupt or how do we move forward in this conversation with, while also attempting to disrupt the existing narrative of at-risk? There, there are real challenges uh, that students face. And I, 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 I don't want, and it was not my expectation for this book to minimize real challenges that students face, whether it's materially or not. And I sort of opened the book with that and closed the book with that. Um, but what, we, what I think we need to be careful not to do is to frame those students in ways that don't allow them to be seen outside of that space. And so how, how, what are the mechanisms that we have in place where we recognize that a student might have some particular challenge, but we also simultaneously are thinking about all of the other sort of wonderful and beautiful um, aspects of their identity and their performance. So how do we help educators to see that child in a, in a holistic way. And I think at a, at a minimum, that's what we need to do. If you if there's a student, not that you call them at risk, but you see that this is a child that I need to work with, are you, are you actively thinking about what, where are the, what, what are those other aspects of that child that aren't connected to this riskness thing or whatever the issue is that you're concerned with? Because I think that will, that'll keep us That'll keep us open and flexible, um, and it'll also allow us to take in the full humanity of the children that we're working with. I don't necessarily believe that people are using these terms or even using these programs because they're trying to hurt children. Right. But we, I don't know how much we think about how the use of those terms can limit what we believe those students are capable right. of doing and how it may, in some cases, begin to limit the child who internalizes that, right? Absolutely. And so I, I, I think whatever we can do to push our educators to think in expansive ways, and I try to add some, what are some more um, expansive ways to think about um, um, issues that we want to address or limitations that we know need to be addressed with, with, the, with the students that we work with. It also means that we need to be thinking about how the challenges that they face are not just challenges that are unique to them. They're not just these individual micro level things. We need to think about how might our systems be placing students in positions where they're not able to be successful, Absolutely. right? And, and I think when we think more expansively in those kinds of ways that we can move away from the, the limiting frame, uh, limiting uh, uh, problems with uh, this kind of uh, framing. Amen. Can I get an amen? Okay. Thank you. I just want to thank you, Dr. Brown, for this text. I work with schools across the country. Um, and to me, this is mandatory reading for any school leader, school district leader. The blueprint that you lay out in the final chapters to begin the discourse and dialogue and really reorienting and questioning and introspection. Beautiful. And so thank you. 
so much for the text and thank you for the opportunity. Well, thank you for this. Those were wonderful questions. You did such an outstanding job. Thank I really you. do. I really appreciate it and, and, and love the way that you went through your questioning. It was just, it was awesome. So thank, thank you. you. Thank and thank you. you for reading the book. Of course. <laughs> I'm privileged that you, that you did. I feel privileged that you did that. Awesome. Well, thank you guys. Thank so, you. So, Brittany, real quick, mm -hmm. can you tell us a little bit about the Emoja Collective and what you do with that? Yes. Um, just briefly how you got into entrepreneurship and things like that before, before we officially close out. Absolutely. So the Umoja Collective is truly a special education advocacy and consulting firm. Um, so many of our black and brown children are labeled uh, with disabilities, right? Some actually have disabilities. And what I was finding as a school leader is I was sitting in meetings with parents who truly did not understand what all this paperwork meant, what this process meant. And um, versus I had, you know, my, my black and brown parents, my parents whose English wasn't their first language, they were really struggling to access this special education process, understanding their child's needs and understanding what the school was proposing um, versus many white parents I was working with really were coming in with full teams to support them. And so I founded Umoja Collective to serve as an advocate for black and brown families with children with disabilities, helping them navigate the process, helping even adults with disabilities to transition from K through 12 education into college. And so we are based in Baltimore uh, and we essentially exist to eradicate inequities at the intersection of race and disability. And we're doing that in K through 12 education spaces, so. Yeah. Thank you for joining this edition of Entrepreneurial Appetite. If you like the episode, you can support the show by becoming one of our founding 55 patrons, which gives you access to our live discussions and bonus materials. Or you can subscribe to the show, give us five stars and leave a comment. 